Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your dreams. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, I speak with Nushin Nasiri about nanotech sensors that detect disease from your breath. But first up, here's the news about social expression in people with autistic spectrum disorder. Autistic people are shunned unless they write. A new meta-study of the first impressions that typically developing people have of autistic children and adults shows that neurotypical people have little interest in getting to know autistic people even based on the briefest of first impressions. These bad impressions form in seconds, even when based on recordings. This ostracising behaviour by the majority massively limits the opportunities for people with autism to practice their social skills and hurts their ability to integrate socially. However, if people make their first impression of people with autism from reading their writing before they meet them, then they treat them the same as anyone else. This suggests that it's autistic people's style of body language and speech that puts typically developing people off in seconds not the content of their words. Social networking, anyone? First impressions are quickly made, hard to change, and make a big difference to people's lives. People with autistic spectrum disorder are diagnosed by impairments in social interaction that are associated with smaller social networks and fewer friendships, difficulty securing and keeping employment, high rates of loneliness, and an overall reduced quality of life. Previous studies assessed attitudes towards autism using surveys, written stories of autism, or actors portraying autistic behaviour. The three studies in this meta-study examined how people form first impressions based upon authentic behaviour under real social conditions, observing autistic and typically developing people. The first study matched a group by gender, age and IQ. They assembled 10 groups of 17 people, 25-year-old men with IQs of 110. The researchers created a high-risk social challenge task, a 60-second mock audition for a reality game show. Each video showed the face and body of the participants 10 seconds after they'd introduced themselves. The video was then split into five different forms, audio only, video only, audio and video, a transcript of speech content, and a static image. The static image showed the person sitting upright, not speaking or gesturing, but with their eyes open. Participants were asked to rate 40 of the people who auditioned, using just one of the five forms of stimulus. They were asked to rate the auditioning people on the attributes of attractiveness, 
awkwardness, intelligence, likability, trustworthiness, and dominance or submissiveness. They were also asked how they felt about willingness to live near the people who auditioned, likelihood of hanging out with the people who auditioned in their free time, level of comfort sitting next to the people who auditioned, and likelihood of starting a conversation with the people who auditioned. On all except the transcript test, people with autistic spectrum disorder were perceived as less attractive, more awkward, less intelligent, less likeable, less trustworthy, and submissive. For the transcript test, people were rated similarly, whether they had autistic spectrum disorder or not. The second study used a stimulus group with autistic spectrum disorder, two women and ten men, along with a group of typically developing adults consisting of seven women and nine men. They were rated by a typically developed group of 17 women and 19 men. The stimulus people had a natural conversation with an experimenter that they were already familiar with. During the conversation, the experimenter wore pivot head video camera glasses to record a first-person view of the social interaction. Randomly selected clear still images from the video were used to stimuli for each person who had videoed a conversation. The people who were doing the ratings were using the still images to answer the questions, how socially awkward is this person? How approachable is this person? Would I see myself being friends with this person? Using a sliding bar. Men only rated men, and women only rated women. People with autistic spectrum disorder scored worse over all the questions and as more awkward. Presenting the raters with different still images of the same people at different times didn't change their impression. In the third study, seven autistic boys and seven typical boys formed the stimulus group. 125 adults and 33 teenagers served as the raters. People in the stimulus group were asked to retell brief stories containing happiness, surprise, fear and anger. These videos were edited to clips a few seconds long, representing all four emotions and containing one complete sentence or phrase each. Raters were asked to move a slider between not likely and very likely to judge the children's overall awkwardness, as well as their likelihood to start a conversation with others, have a lot of friends, get along well with others, and spend a lot of time by themselves. People with autistic spectrum disorder were rated worse than the typically developed group, and as more awkward. The researchers have found that the quality of social interactions comes not just from social ability, but also social expression. Many aspects of social presentation are different to the typically developing majority, including facial expressions, where they look, different timing of expressive gestures, violations of personal space, and unusual stress and intonation of words when using their voice. Unfamiliar observers judge expressions made by individuals with autistic spectrum disorder as more awkward or odd, so they may choose not to start or continue social interaction. It's often noted how people with autism struggle to interpret the mental states of other people. But the research indicates that typically developing people also struggle to interpret the mental states of people with autism. The blockage goes both ways. 
Perhaps kids in schools should meet new classmates in an online forum before they start in a new school. It could massively improve their life. The paper was titled, Neurotypical Peers Are Less Willing to Interact with Those with Autism Based on Thin Slice Judgments, and was published in the journal Nature Scientific Reports. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Nushin Nasiri is a postdoctoral research fellow from the University of Technology, Sydney. She's developing nanotechnology sensors for your breath. Nushin came to my attention through her performance in FameLab. I began by asking her, why develop a sensor for breath? The aim of the project is actually detecting disease quite early, and we realized that one of the best ways to detect the disease in human body at a very early stage is detecting through human breath, because whatever that happens in your body, there are some uh, biomarkers. That biomarkers are kind of the signature, the signature of that disease. No matter how you detect it, you can detect it through human blood. You can do the blood test. You can do the urine test. Uh, but m- in all these tests, people are looking for that biomarker. But one of the be- first places that the biomarkers find to come out of your body is through your breath. So that's why, because we wanted to detect it quite early to have a high chance of being recovered, we start looking at human breath, analyze the human breath to, you know, detect it quite early. How do your sensors do that? It's all based on a chemical reaction. So the sensor that I have, it it has a very unique structure. The sensor is ultra porous. It means that it's super, super spongy. So it, it's like 2% of the whole sensor is bulk material. 98% is just air. So that's super spongy. And that's the best structure for analyzing breath because for breath, you want the breath goes deep into the sensor. If your sensor is super spongy, if someone breathes onto the sensor, then breath can go deep inside the sensor and the whole volume of the sensor can act as a sensor, can react with your breath. And that's how we can detect very small concentration of that biomarker in human breath. And this is nanotechnology. Yes, it is. It was impossible before nanotechnology because the way that we actually fabricate the sensor and all those um, high protein sensor and those small, uh, so the sensor is actually made of billions of nanoparticles sitting on a substrate. So if it's not nanoparticles, we wouldn't have this high uh, sensitivity in the sensor. And do you make sensors for other things? Yeah, actually, the sensor is one of the applications of the sensor is detecting uh, disease through human breath. But because the sensor is has a unique structure and has a unique properties, then we thought that maybe this sensor can be also used for, for, for other applications as well. So the other application that I use, since I came to Australia, I realized that people in Australia, they love to go swimming, you know, outdoor. There's a beautiful outdoor in Australia everywhere. Uh, and then, uh, and of course, there is a problem with ozone layer here in Australia as well. So people 
love to play out outdoor, go for swimming, but from the other side, there is a danger of uh, absorbing um, higher dosage of UV by your skin, and then the, the kind of danger of having getting the um, skin cancer. So we actually try to kind of use this sensor as a UV photodetector, which actually we got a very good results. Again, because the sensor is a, is a nano sensor made of billions of nanoparticles, and it is super spongy, so the, it could detect. Uh, UV light, so the sensor can measure the exact amount of UV absorbed by your skin. And now what we are working on is that we want to connect the sensor because the sensor is quite small. It's a fingertip size sensor. You can install the sensor like on your uh, glass. You can install it on your watch. You can install it on your clothes. But now the thing is that we want to connect the sensor wirelessly to your mobile phone. Now imagine that you go outside and then you have, there, is a, there is a sun. It's a sunny day and then your skin is a absorbing UV, UV, until the UV dosage is above the limit. And then you receive a text message on your phone, tells you that, okay, get back in is enough for today. That's amazing. And would the breath sensor also be attached to a phone? It's actually, yeah, I mean, the, the, the ultimate goal is to make it smaller and smaller to be able to, like, Imagine that the, the breast could be as a small as a flash memory, as a flash memory, and then you can connect it to your phone and then you can breathe into the sensor and then uh, you can actually see the, the results on your phone screen. So that's the that's goal at the, at the moment. But at this stage, we are more focused on how accurate, how sensitive, and then how selective is the sensor. But when we, we finish this part, then, of course, the next step would be how we can make it uh, small enough to kind of connect it to the phone. The sensor itself, it is small. I'm, more, I'm super confident about that part. But the thing is that to be able to detect each disease, there is... Um, several biomarkers for each disease and you can't just simply detect one biomarker and say okay this patient has this disease and sometimes um, some people has two different diseases simultaneously and you should be able to kind of distinguish diseases so the sensor itself it is a small but sometimes you need an array of sensors together to make sure that you are detecting the disease accurately sensitively and selectively so that makes it a bit bigger that's why i'm talking about the size of a flash memory not the size of a fingertip. Right. You want to be accurate. You don't want to scare people with diseases they don't have. Yes, exactly. And then, uh, as I said, sometimes it is more complicated because people might have two diseases together and you have to be 100% sure that the your sensor can distinguish these two diseases. And sometimes the biomarker is not particularly for one disease. Actually, it's a shared biomarker. So there are some biomarkers that are shared between two or three different diseases. And that's why you have to be able to detect other biomarkers as well to make sure that which disease you are targeting at. So what sort of diseases will you expect to be able to detect? My first focus is on diabetes because that's you know, it's like 14% of Australian, they have diabetes. For diabetes, if uh, the, the goal, we have two goals. If the sensor works uh, perfectly, then we can detect the diabetes quite early. And if someone has a diabetes already, we can monitor the patient. So it has two purposes uh, because, you know, uh, so yeah, the, the, the first goal is to, to detect it early, to prevent the disease, to kind of, uh, to, make, to, to make sure that we can recover faster. But sometimes the patient already has the disease, but uh, like in terms of diabetes, 
patient, they have to prick their fingers three times per day and four times per week. And this is super, super painful if you have to do it uh, like in mentally and physically, both of them. It's painful. But if they can breathe onto the sensor instead of pricking their fingers and then through breath, we can detect acetone, which is a biomarker for diabetes. And my sensor can detect, the, can kind of accurately measure the exact concentration of acetone in human breath. And based on the acetone in your breath, we can calculate the exact level of sugar in, in your blood. So there is no need to prick your finger anymore. Well, I'm sure people will be very pleased when that's available. <laughs> and I've heard that there's diseases like, you, you, there's stories of dogs picking up on cancer and things yes. like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's actually the uh, dog's nose ha- has a very sophisticated structure as well. So for dogs, there are um, two big differences. Com- I mean, the dog's nose compared to human nose. The first one is the structure of the nose itself, which they have uh, uh, lots of lots of uh, like. Mm, um, 300, I think, 300 million olfactory uh, receptors uh, in their mm, nose compared to ours, which is only 5 million. So they have 60 times more receptors in their in their nose so they can detect the tiniest concentration, the tiniest elements. But the other side, their brain is very different than our brain. So the part of their brain that can analyze all of this information received by these uh, receptors is more sophisticated. That's why they can actually analyze it. They can memorize it. You, I mean, human can can smell something, and then later you realize that that smell is familiar, but you can't remember that what exactly that smell is. You know, but dogs they can remember it because the because of their brain, because the brain processes the all this information perfectly, and they can they can you know it's they can kind of. Uh, detect and remember they can be trained they can be trained much better than than human that's remarkable so is it possible that in the future well, we're talking way down the development track that you could get these little sensors next to the phone next to the microphone in a phone so that every time you spoke it analyzed your <laughs> actually i had an idea and i was talking with one of the professors and they've told me that do not mention this idea because that might be a bit scary but i'm going to tell you <laughs> the idea is that i thought that we can put the sensor into the phone and you don't need to even breathe onto the sensor to check your health whenever that you are talking over the phone you are talking and that sensor can run automatically and then can analyze your breath and then after after your phone call you're gonna have to receive you're gonna receive the results on your on your screen but the uh, people says oh okay no 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 this is gonna be too scary <laughs> so we prefer to analyze our breath whenever that we want so we don't want to automatically analyze it but so. it would be so convenient <laughs> <laughs> yes it is <laughs> and also i mean Okay, I understand the arguments about privacy and only doing things when you intend to, but surely if you're talking on your phone every day, for example, like most people, then that means your health is being checked every day and it could pick up things that you might not have thought 
to check for. Exactly. I do agree with you because, you know, if there is something wrong in our body, I know that's not a good news. I know that. But it's better to hear it. It's better to be aware of that as soon as possible because there are lots of benefits coming with the early stage detection because you're going you're gonna to be recovered faster. It's a high chance of recovery. The hospitalization period is going to be so short and the treatment cost is going to be so less. So in, in any way, it's going to be beneficial. But yeah, I mean, People, I mean, I totally understand that people do not want to hear bad news. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's the same as having a heartbeat monitor mm-hmm. in your watch, for example. Exactly. It's checking you all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. that means it can pick up private information, like when you're more excited or more relaxed, but also things that go wrong that you might not have thought to look for. Yes, exactly. Actually, uh, there's a, I always use a sentence in my in my uh, talk that people always scared of cancer. Cancer is a very scary word. But you know why cancer is scary? Because they think that cancer kills you, but that's wrong. Cancer doesn't kill you at all. The late detection of cancer kills you. So if we detect it quite early, there is no disease that kills you. The reason that they, they are like dangerous diseases because they are hidden, because there is no chance to kind of detect it early unless you have a frequent checkup, you know. And there is a, it is, it is not easy to go to doctor every month for a blood check, you know. And the thing is that there are some diseases that when you detect it in your blood, most of the time it is too late because if it's detectable in your blood, then it means that it's, it's spread everywhere in your body. Mm. But when it's in your breath, there is a high chance. So there are some, some kind of stages of the disease that if we detect it in breath, and then if you go to the doctor and ask them to check your blood, they're going to tell you that you are healthy because it's not in your blood yet. You know, and that's a good sign that that's early. That's very early stage. That's that's how we can save lives. And that's how we can save money. Honeybees also can detect uh, cancer. They can detect diseases. And it is super, super easy to train them. So the way that they train them, they capture the bee and then they start giving some the smell of the target, any target that you want. Imagine that the smell of acetone. So they start giving them the odor of acetone, and then after two or three seconds of acetone, they give the bee sugar, okay? And then, so they do it with acetone and not with any other element. And then after that, after eight minutes, the bee is trained and the bee is ready. So then whenever that the bee smell acetone, the bee stick the tongue out to, 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 the, to kind of eat the sugar. And they put a camera on the top of the bee to see if the, if the tongue is out. If the tongue is out, then they say, okay, there is an acetone. You know, but that, so that's, that's super easy. So you can do it. You can do it at home. You can do it with any order that you want. But the thing is that most of the time, the life expectancy of the, of the bee is not uh, so long. Normally they die after, I think, two months or three months. So you have to keep training them. <laughs> so it's better to use my sensor. <laughs> not only that, but I would have thought for those people who are worried about having a sensor yep. built into a phone, mm-hmm. Trained bees are much scarier. (laughs) (laughs) There is a chance of being stung, yes. (laughs) You had your opportunity to present your work on stage. Yes, uh, I went to the FameLab in 2016 and that was an amazing experience. 
We, we, we've been trained by lots of science communicators and radio and media people to how to be interviewed, you know, so these sort of skills that you never have any chance to, to learn when you are doing your degree at the university, you know, how to present your research, how to talk to media, how to mm -hmm. talk to general audience, you know. And then, yeah, so that was amazing. I went to the national final and present my research, and then after that, it opens the door to me. I had a TEDx Sydney talk in April 2017. That was amazing. That's like, you know, so it's a, it's a, it's a big dream, you know. The big dream came true. And then, yeah, and then after that, I got uh, lots of opportunity to meet lots of people. You know, people at the university, you do cool science. You publish high-impact papers, you know. But if people do not know about your research, if, if, if no one knows about your research, you have less chance of being heard. The science should be heard, you know. Otherwise, you know, it's like, I think for me was very beneficial because in one of these competitions that I presented my results, my, my research, there was, a, um, the, there was a lady sitting in the audience and she was the head of the insurance company. And she heard my, my research and she kind of, she was very interested. And now after five months of having meetings, 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 they are committed to fund my research for the next two or three years, you know, and then, yeah, I'm receiving a big money. Congratulations. <laughs> and that's fantastic. Not because of the money. The money is important, but because there is one step forward in this research to, to make it possible, to, to make the real device, to see how the real device can work for, you know, to save people's lives. Well, Nushin, thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks for having me. That was Nushin Nasiri from the University of Technology, Sydney, with a nanotechnology sensor detecting diabetes on your breath, and her hive of trained bees. Nushin will return in a future episode to talk about science communication. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on radio? Record a voice memo on your phone, or use the voicemail tab on the website. We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions, and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like Diffusion Science Radio's page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio and support the show so that I can make more episodes. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. Sound check and fact checking by Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia, to 28 stations on the community radio network, including 2RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, and 7LTN City Park Radio in Launceston, Tasmania. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than 900 previous episodes archived 
on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.